That still drove you. You wanted to know what happened, right? What made these people do this? The so-called Hollinsburg murders happened on Valentine's Day. No motive beyond the thrill of the kill. That's all it was. The Hollinsburg murders were just a pivotal, really, turning point for you. And now, the safety zone. We are here today talking with Mike McCarty, founder and CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions. And welcome, and thank you for being brave to share your story a little bit and your background, which is really so important to what you do today. And I think uh, the audience will find it compelling. I just want to say, I had starting out, Mike has a book called Choking in Fear, and it is a memoir about the Hollinsburg murders. Mike, I got to tell you, it was riveting. I mean, it, it was riveting, frightening, and hopeful. I want to bring this up because it really details the heart of why you went the direction you did into law enforcement, why you're at where you are today. And so really just want to lead off, the Hollinsburg murders were just a pivotal, really turning point for you in your life and wanted you to just share not only as a, a child when they took place in your hometown that never saw anything uh, like this, but all through your life, you pursued this case. Could you share a little bit about that? Because I think that has so much to do with where you are today. Yeah, absolutely, Melinda. I was nine years old, small town, 500 people. We didn't even have a stoplight. You know, I think we had maybe six stop signs. My dad was Indiana State Police officer. And it was literally Valentine's Day morning that these murders happened. I did not know anything about it till I got home from school that day. I just remember coming in from school. I'm going to date myself a little bit because this was back when a telephone was attached to the wall and you had a cord and... <laughs> I was hearing these one-sided conversations as my dad leaned against the bar saying, no, we don't know who they are. We don't know who did it. Yes, it, Betty Spencer it went to Waveland High School with us. And I could tell just by the way my mom was watching him, the way he was talking on the phone, not paying a bit of attention to me. Something big had happened, but I had no idea what this was found out very quickly that there was a major homicide about two miles from our house where somebody had broke into a house. They thought it was three or four assailants based on the surviving mother, but had lined her and her four children up on the floor and shotgunned them, killed the four boys instantly. The mother had survived, it blew her wig off in the dark, and they thought it was her head and left, and she was able to run next door and call police because they literally uh, had just fled the house. And so, yeah, th this had a huge impact on me. It was the first time I had ever mm -hmm. seen real crime. You know, my dad's mm -hmm. a police officer, but, you know, what? Somebody stole a pig. Somebody stole a cow and write a ticket for... Right. You're in small town USA. Uh, you don't lock the doors, probably. You don't, you know, everybody knows exactly. everybody. That is correct. And when I saw my dad was scared, mm. that's when I knew I had to be scared. Because mm. as a kid, you kind of play off your parents, right? But, mm. uh, you know, here's my dad in his uniform. and But I could tell there was a sense of nervousness. 
And this case went on for a long time. It took three weeks to even figure out who had perpetrated these crimes. So the fear was just beyond palpable in the community. People were just almost choking. That's the title of the book because the unknown was just uh, horribly frightening. And to add layers to us, the mother who survived was released from the hospital a week later and moved to an undisclosed location. And my dad was assigned to the midnight shift to guard her. So now he was leaving me at home with my mom and my one-year-old little brother Mm. all night long. And we didn't know who was out there, where these killers were lurking. But it didn't get any better once the killers were identified because my father knew them instantly, had dealt with them, had arrested some of them. One of them he had a lot of problems with, a guy by the name of Roger Drollinger. And I noticed my dad begin to put his pistol on the nightstand when he went to bed. Little things as a kid, you just kind of, these things you focus in on. Um, And I knew then... I needed to be scared because my dad always gun high in a closet away from us when he was home, things were changing very quickly. So this went on for two or three months before they finally apprehended all of these killers. And it turned out to be 100% a crime perpetrated by just pure lust killing had absolutely no motive beyond the thrill of the kill. That's all it was. When I, in reading your book, I mean, really, they were executed. And to know this wasn't drug motivated, it wasn't a robbery, not that that makes obviously the, the deaths any different, but to know that it was, pardon the term, for kicks, like you said, a thrill killing, I believe that they say now. And, and then to know that you knew some of these people. You know, they they weren't from another community. I mean, there were people from your community that you knew. And and I I know your dad was gripped by one in uh, particular that he just couldn't picture, uh, couldn't believe that he was a part of it. And that that really drove you, didn't it? Even as you got older and and in your profession, you went into becoming a a police officer yourself and then into being a detective where your heart was in uh, crime prevention, domestic violence. But still drove you. You wanted to know what happened, right? What made these people do this? Yeah, it gnawed on me for for years and years. I mean, literally, as it happened, I started clipping, you know, articles out of the newspaper and I saved them. What nine-year-old boy does that, right? right. And so I, I I've got this uh manila folder full of newspaper clippings, and I can remember being in college and having a time or a break. And I would pull these out and start reading back through them. I don't know what I was looking for. I do now, I was looking for an answer. Why, Uh, why would you do this? Why would you kill kids? The youngest was roughly my age. And so I carried these with me to college. I graduated from college and moved to Nashville, Tennessee, became a police officer and then a violent crime detective. And I can remember sitting at home one, afternoon before I went to work and I had pulled them out and here I was reading these articles again. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to find out why this happened. I didn't set out to write a book. So I sat down at the computer. I drafted a letter. I tracked down the four killers and where they were incarcerated. Three were in the same prison and I fired off a letter and I did the same thing to the surviving mother who was a friend of our family, but she had relocated and I tracked her down in uh, Georgia 
and sent her a letter as well. And of course, she responded really quickly. We started talking, but it was about a month or six weeks, and I finally got a letter back from Dan Stonebreaker, one of the killers. And it kicked off really about a 10-year relationship and quite honestly became a friendship as odd as that is. But he began to answer a lot of the questions. With those questions being answered, the further I got into this, it just felt like there was probably a book here. And so I just started playing and writing and and eventually it evolved into a book. So really that shaped shaped your career in the sense of, I mean, you always wanted to protect people. You went into, uh, I found it kind of interesting. You, you really wanted to be a detective in domestic violence and violence prevention really was your, was really your heart. And I think it seems like everything that played out in your childhood, besides the fact of your parents, your dad's law enforcement background and, and your mom. You talked about in the book, too, that you would come home often and there would be women that are victims of domestic violence and that your home became really a safe place often for that or, or even child, uh, child abuse uh, victims. And so you, you grew up with this, but it, the heart that you have, not only for the victim, which is prominent, but for the intervention to prevent a young person from going down the road that like these perpetrators did with the Hollinsburg murders. That has really seemed to have formed your, your overall career. I think I have a, I think I'm wired a little bit unique. I think I'm wired unique for law enforcement. Most law enforcement is very uh, militaristic, very up and down command structure. Tell me what to do. I go do it not really wired that way. I'm more of a solutions driven person. That's probably why I've been more successful in business. See a problem, figure out a solution. And so I probably looked at the murders initially and thought, why, what is it in their background? So I wasn't just looking at the victims. I was looking at the perpetrators trying to figure out where did the wires get miscrossed at what point? But I was also able to push that and compare that against a lot of the cases. I was working as a violent crime detective. I was working in the midst of homicides and violence and rape and and at the same time interviewing these men oftentimes that had committed these horrific crimes. And a lot of times during the interview, I'm looking at them trying to figure out what was it in their life mm-hmm. that went so wrong that mm-hmm. caused them to to commit these kinds of crimes. And so I think that's what's really driven me most of my life. When I was very frustrated as a police officer for the first year, I can remember standing at a gas pump, gassing up with other officers. And one of my buddies was said something. And I said, I I don't think I'm going to make it much longer. I said, I've reapplied to law school. I said, look at the back of the car. It says to protect and serve. I said, that's a joke. Our motto should be to show up and solve because that's what we do. We don't protect Mm -hmm. anybody. We just show up when you get robbed, your house gets broken into, you get murdered. We'll solve it, but we're never there to keep you from getting hurt. And so there was a frustration in me that I got into a career that I thought I was going to help people and I wasn't. But an opportunity presented itself through the mayor's office to form what became the largest domestic violence police-based program in the United States, 100% prevention-based, working with community partners. And it was really my cup of tea uh, Mm -hmm. is what I had been looking for. 
And so I helped design and implement this unit with about five other uh, police officers. The domestic homicide rate, we dropped that by more than 50%. That went from mm. 25 women and children every year being killed to 12 almost mm. immediately. So very quantifiable results. I stayed with the unit three years, but I still wasn't really wired for a long-term government career. Um, I was still not quite tied into the paramilitary culture. <laughs> but I think I was itching to take that little bit of what we had done there and take it to the world. And so yes. I spent uh, probably a decade traveling, helping plant that Nashville model. And then that grew into the company today, Safe Hiring, which is 100% about protecting people. So, and I went to talk to you about that. So you, you spent your life protecting people or trying to, right, through law enforcement, violence prevention, um, intervention at risk individuals. And now at Safe Hiring, you're really using that experience, that heart, really, that you have for protection, but, but for intervention and prevention. And you're using some really interesting technology, tactical strategies. Um, I find it really interesting what you do with safe hiring. I mean, someone might say, well, security, you know, when you think of security, it's, it can be such a vague kind mm -hmm. of uh, term. So share what, what you, you know, the, the overview of safe hiring, because I, I just found it so fascinating, the different buckets that you're in and really that, that you've carried over this violence prevention aspect to so many sectors of society. Well, I, I originally resisted starting safe hiring. I was actually approached by some large public school districts. I was uh, doing some prevention work through the American Bar Association, and it was geared towards schools and teen dating violence. One of the breaks, a large school district said, hey, can you help us with background checks? Well, like my kids, I go Google it, right? And I like, wow, there's 10 million companies that do background checks. I came back after lunch. I was like, uh, there's a million companies that do that. You guys are probably good. I'm not jumping into a saturated market. Mm -hmm. That same school district within a few months was on the front page of our Indianapolis star it was in the local media. They had hired two sex offenders that were working inside their school that had passed the background check. I almost fell off a treadmill and I was like, how, not just one, but how would two sex offenders not be found in a background check? So that alone is what caused me to start Safe Hiring Solutions. I started mm -hmm. doing research. What I found out very quickly, and it still is true today, I did a presentation yesterday on trends in background screening, and I'm still talking about this same topic. This industry is so highly unregulated. And if you're a volunteer organization, there are literally almost no rules around how mm. background screenings conducted. And so a lot of times the churches, the volunteer organizations, they choose these cheap, quick, instant uh, type background checks, but they are no competition to a sex offender. Mm. And so I, I started safe hiring. We kept our integrity and we have for 15 years. We will not lower our standards. The funny thing is we do these extraordinarily comprehensive searches, sometimes cheaper than churches are buying or mm. volunteer organizations are buying these cheap 
searches. We've expanded over the years. I brought together um, uh, one thing I learned very quickly. I am never the smartest guy in the room and I'm not intimidated by smart people. Um, So I brought together an advisory board. One of my advisors was in uh, the Bush White House. He was on the Secret Service security team. I've got other Secret Service officers. We've got school security directors. We've got church security directors. We have Navy SEALs, you know, mm-hmm. and the, yeah, these are eclectic group of people mm-hmm. because you've got prevention. And then my buddy, Tony, who was a SEAL, he's always looking at how do you breach security? So he always brings a unique perspective mm-hmm. to everything we do. We've created softwares to manage volunteer process, visitor management, uh, checking in and out of locations or facilities, automating reference check processes. So it's text-based versus Mm -hmm. picking up the phone and calling. We've created integrations with jails. So not only can we do a background check, but once you're approved, I can send you an instant notice if they get arrested. So somebody Mm -hmm. that should immediately be removed from having access to maybe children, you don't find that out next year when you do a a Mm recheck, but you find it out the minute they're booked into a jail even in the midst of this COVID-19 that we're dealing with, um, you know, one of our softwares is very well equipped to do kind of contact tracing. But uh, one Mm -hmm. of the other tools that we're literally evaluating right now is thermal body temp cameras where we can Mm -hmm. put those into our kiosk and it can take your temperature while you're checking in. And if you've Mm -hmm. got a fever over a certain amount, then they could actually stop you from coming in and potentially spreading not just COVID, but think in terms of flu or bird flu a few years ago or any number of different future pandemics or even not quite to that scale that we may be dealing with. So we deal with everything security. It's a 360 holistic um, approach to keeping, I mean, our core mission is keeping people safe, but we really, you know, we have 7,000 clients that work with children. It's about keeping kids safe so they don't Mm -hmm. become victims or they don't become the four guys that walked into the house in Hollinsburg and killed those boys. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's interesting. I know that in uh, your company, you know, tagline talking about, you know, the uncertain world that we live in and, it's just so true. You know, you grew up in a small town America that would think would be the safest spot. We often think, you know, big cities or just big population areas or, you know, socioeconomic conditions. And the reality is it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter the, you know, the, not only the geographic location, doesn't matter the socioeconomic location. We do live in an uncertain world. And the reality is we've seen obviously the mass shootings at our schools, the things that we probably never would have thought we'd see many, you know, 25 years ago, uh, like what you saw, but the pandemic now. Um, But I think what strikes me in in, in kind of a segue is that we never thought we would also see the church, faith communities be at risk for better lack of words, whether that's entering their building. And we've seen that, you know, a shooter, uh, whether it was domestic violence orientated, but even internally, you know, uh, sex abuse cases um, with volunteers as a member of the congregation or, you know, sadly, you know, sometimes a youth pastor. And it struck me that through this all, you're a man of faith, 
um, and have that element. And you, you know, you recently kind of formally, because I know you've worked with churches for, you know, for quite some time, but started Safe yep. Ministry Solutions. And I just wanted to touch upon that because I think kind of like how you grew up, the crime was shocking. It would be shocking anywhere, but it, in particular, because you just never thought that could happen here. And I think yeah. a lot of times, uh, myself as a, a person of faith, you don't think it can happen in my church, uh, you know, in my synagogue, in my uh, faith community. And the reality is that's not the case. So I wanted you to, to just share a little bit about your heart on, you know, for the church, for faith communities in, in general, and why you started Safe Ministry Solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, clearly the murders proved to me that these things can happen anywhere. And when I was a patrol officer on my dashboard, I clipped a little saying up there, always expect the unexpected. It was just a constant reminder for me that no matter what the call was, it may not be exactly the way the call was coming in. Cat in a tree, turns out a guy's trying to kill you. So there, I've always lived by this um, expecting the unexpected, kind of this uncertain world. But there was an incident when I was about a freshman in college. I'd come home for the weekend, and my parents kind of met me outside and said, hey, uh, you're going to have to go back to college. We've given you room up for a, for a short period of time. And there was a young girl in our community, and she had been sexually abused by her father. Now, to put this in perspective, not only was her father a teacher, he was a member of our church. So this wasn't an unknown. This was a known. So very early in my life, I realized that these things happen. They happen everywhere. They happen in the church. They happen in the school. They can happen anywhere. I think, unfortunately, if you've not had those experiences, mm -hmm. you can oftentimes look at that and say, we know everybody. Mm -hmm. well, I'm telling you what, I knew everybody in my small town. There was a whole bunch of kids I grew up with. Turns out they went through a whole bunch of horrible stuff when they were young and nobody knew about it. So that doesn't work. Safe ministry is really birthed out of, we have, we've been working with church and ministries, probably 3,500, 4,000 church or ministries for 12 or 13 years. We've never really correctly kind of branded it, I guess. Um, you know, I think people, churches might be a little confused. They go to safe hiring and think, well, we're not hiring. We use volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so safe ministry has really taken our ministry groups and bringing them into their own area where we have a lot of things that are specific for church and ministry. Mm -hmm. And the leaders in this area, they're all people of faith too. We're not just people that run a for-profit company. I mean, uh, I, I pray for our clients every day before I get out of bed. I, I, there's a certain group of people in need, my family that I pray for every morning or my feet hit the floor. And for years, my clients are on that list. And the reason is, A, I, we don't want to miss anything that could cause somebody to get hurt. So we take this extraordinarily seriously and we're doing everything we can because let's be honest, the church is under attack these days mm -hmm. and that's physical, that can be spiritual. Um, and if we look at this, it's kind of a holistic response to the, the church safety. It's not just, if we just focus on 
um, one aspect, uh, screening volunteers, that's not enough. So we take a very holistic approach to safety and security. We're looking at the background screening program. Who's volunteering? Do you have a husband and wife working together in one, you know, youth classroom, which you shouldn't. Why? Mm -hmm. Somebody does something. They're going to cover for the other one potentially. I mean, there's just so many different areas. And then we've got a whole team that understand armed intruder and how different a church is versus the schools. And we work with schools, some of the biggest in the country on armed intruder, but they're locked down environments. Now we're opening the doors on Sunday morning and saying, please come in, bring all the sinners in because that's where we all go. Right. Um, we want people coming and now how do we protect the church? And so the ministry is so unique to any other client that we work with that we've launched safe ministry and, and learning management systems so we can do continual training. This can be done online. You can't bring all your volunteers together on a Saturday morning. People are too busy these days. Mm-hmm. So we've created uh, methods of being able to train at a high level, you know, those volunteers, your administrators, your security teams. So, so that's really kind of the, the genesis of safe ministry. And it, you know, it seems, I, I, I mean, as you know, I mean, I've worked with ministries for many, many, many years. And I, what I find interesting is the uh, mega churches or large faith communities, you know, they tend to understand certain elements better, like background checks, you know, for, for those working with the kids in the children's church. Um, but I've also noticed uh, and not with all, but on uh, even one of my former churches, wonderful church, wonderful pastors, wonderful community. You know, it was a smaller church and they did take precautions. Like you said, you, you couldn't have two family members teaching and, and they did take certain precautions, but they were very resistant to background checks because they were afraid of offending uh, was one thing, uh, but mainly because they felt, look, these people have been here 20 years, you know, we're family, you know, we know them and they didn't want to offend them. And, you know, is that something you see? I mean, what, what do you think is for, for pastors or for ministries? What, what roadblock do you see? I mean, I know that, you know, like you said, we're, you know, they're, they're reaching out to everybody and they don't want to look like a, (laughs) they want people to come into the building to not look like a fortress, you know, and things like that. So I I get that it's a unique situation. But what do you find as being the challenge or what, you know, what would, what is your advice to pastors that they're concerned about offending people or they're, yeah. there's a block there about doing certain things? Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's pretty clear. We've got a biblical and a moral obligation to protect our kids. And mm-hmm. so when, when I walk into my kid's school, well, until they closed, uh, very yeah. frequently, uh, and I would scan in at our software, I could easily say, okay, why are you having me check into my software? You buy this for me. me. I'm, I'm above this. I go through that every place I go because that is the way the policy should work. Whenever we see people that want to circumvent it, there's usually two reasons. One, they're trying to hide something or B, they think they're above going through some kind of process. Mm -hmm. Typically that's the only two groups that would get potentially offended by this. And so I think more and more churches have, uh, and, and, 
volunteer organizations as a whole have yes. moved toward, they get that. This is best practice. This is the correct policy. I would say the larger concern that I see within the faith-based community mm-hmm. is the larger churches may think they're doing this really, really well, but in some of the audits that we've done from a distance, it's a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that, sometimes they're choosing background screening provider because they're integrated in their church management system, not because they've audited that firm to determine if they're doing it really well, they're giving them really good data. They're either picking them because of automation only mm-hmm. or because they're cheap. And so we also see, uh, and we see this on the school side, so it's not surprising that it's very prevalent in the ministry side as well. A lot of our security directors may be chosen because they had a career in law enforcement. I'm going to tell you right now, my dad was police, my wife was police, my brother's still police, my grandfather was police, I have a cousin who retired as police recently. Everybody in my family on the male side is either police or in prison. So I've got two good (laughs) perspectives here. There's nobody I respect more in this world than a good police officer. I'm telling you right now. I mean, I've I've had them set at my kitchen table since I was a little kid and I became one. I can also tell you, none of us were trained in prevention. I mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. None of us in law enforcement understood security. We weren't security people. We were law enforcement. We put and pulled facts together and we determined if things were happening. And so we have a lot of resistance sometimes with somebody that may have been an administrator in a police department that's now retired and moved over and taken over security that doesn't necessarily mean they really understand prevention. There's only a few areas of law enforcement that are true prevention based. We had a prevention program with domestic violence. The secret service is a model that's completely prevention based school resource officers that are well-trained are prevention based. Those are such small segments. And so a lot of times I'm having to navigate very gently security personnel that are either coming out of a law enforcement career that really need a shift in mindset to understand the prevention side, everything that goes into not allowing it to happen as opposed to dealing with it when it does happen, or folks that have really no experience whatsoever, or they've gone to a lot of classes, read a lot of videos. So, so that's what I see a lot uh, on the ministry side is just really becoming and pulling together kind of a 360 solution that addresses all aspects that's prevention based. I've told people before, when, when we visited other churches, I'll sit through years of horrible sermons if my kids are safe, but I will also tell you that I will not spend one Sunday in that church if I feel like my kids are not safe. Listening to your, not only your career, but uh, your heart for, for people, you know, for safety, um, obviously for our kids, but really for anyone is the bottom line, you know, peace of mind, um, of course, as much as you can have it, you know, in this world, we know ultimately there's, there's only one real solution to peace of mind. But 
but you know, I would like, I would love to, if you're willing, I would love to come back and really, you know, do another podcast on prevention and what you found in your search, you know, of, of trying to find out what happened, what happened to the, to the, these young men. And in one particular, you talked to one of those perpetrators from the Hollinsburg murders. And, and if I, if I remember correctly, he, he became a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I, I, I think our audience would, would really like to know what, what is that factor? What is, what did you find, you know, in the common denominator of prevention, um, you know, for, for kids, uh, you know, really trying to intervene um, before they go down a track. So, so if you're willing, I think it would be great if we can come back and, and do a podcast on that. I think that's something that's important and that often you have such expertise in that field, but also a heart for that. And um, I know in all sectors of society, they want to know what, what can we do, not just to react to situations, but how do we prevent these things from happening? Oh, I, I absolutely would love to do that. I think I've said many, many times over the years, there are tens of thousands of Dan Stonebreakers as little kids walking around these days, and all they need is one good influence that pushes them over to the right side. And Dan told me that from prison the first time I met with him. If he would have had one good male influence, it would have been the difference between serving his whole life in prison versus somebody that led a productive life. And so I think we often confuse a killer and us as being so far apart when in fact that line for a lot of people can be very, very close. And it's Mm -hmm. something that you and I could potentially have that Mm -hmm. impact that pushes somebody across to the right side versus letting them walk down that path of no return. Yes. Well, thank you, Mike. I think it's so important. And I, we will do a podcast on that because that's something every community member, everyone, teachers, parents, uh, police officers, you know, church, uh, faith community leaders. I mean, we all have a hand in that. And um, it's an important, important topic. So thank you yep. for being here today. Thank you mm-hmm. for sharing your background, which I think is so important because it drives what you do. It's like you said, it's not just, um, yes, it's a business, but it's really where your heart is and you have the expertise to help people do that. And we're just so appreciative of all you've done um, in helping people. I appreciate that. Have a great day. You You too. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.